Welcome to Superhero Century. This is our second episode of this podcast. It's part of the Cinema Composite channel. I am Dan and I'm joined by... I'm Tom. Matt. And Kat. We're all here, finally back together again. We started this podcast a week before COVID-19 hit and we're so glad. So this wasn't like one of those quarantine, we're going to start a podcast. We really did start it before. Yeah, we were annoying before quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this podcast is a way to celebrate the superhero movies of the 21st century. We arbitrarily picked 2000 as our jumping off point. So we started with... 2000's X-Men, a great film by all standards. Uh, We're moving on today to Unbreakable. I had not seen this one before. You guys all had, so I'm excited to dissect Unbreakable. Though all three of us hadn't seen it before seeing Split, so none of us had that like early you know, childhood memory of it. It's like the minute Split ended, we were like, and now we have to watch Unbreakable. I can feel the Unbreakable hive of people just like fuming right now because they're probably like these newbies didn't watch it when it came out but i can think of one person that will comment already you know i I think the reason why we didn't see this is because one we were young when this came out we were eight or nine years old and two this is really an adult movie not necessarily inappropriate but it's it's a slow build of a movie it's not your typical superhero fare. It's not one I would think families would have taken their kids to. I'm a little surprised none of us had seen it, only because it was right off the heels of Sixth Sense. We were discussing this the other day, but I think some of us were way too young when we saw Sixth Sense, but like you'd think that we would have at least paid attention. I, I remember when it came out, and I was certainly intrigued by it. but Only because you brought up the Sixth Sense. I just got to say, I think the earlier you can watch it, the better. Better than having it spoiled for you, the ending. Because I feel like I was my childhood was robbed. Someone just told me how it ends. And I went, great. If I would have grown up with Die Hard with a Vengeance and saw Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis together, I definitely would have saw this when it came out. <laughs> Cat likes Die Hard. All right, before we get into it, let's get some context for Unbreakable. Uh, just some quick facts we've already mentioned. Directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, also written by M. Night Shyamalan. It was his second big movie, I guess, after The Sixth Sense, debuted November 2000. So I think X-Men debuted in June or July. This came off right around that time. A budget of $75 million, which I looked it up, is the exact same as X-Men's budget from that same time period. Where did this budget go? That's a fair question. And I saw that, I think I wrote down that Split had a budget of $9 million, and then Glass had a budget of like $25 million. So both of those combined had a smaller budget than this did. I would like to think that Shyamalan discovered Starbucks around this time and just fonded <laughs> all into that. I actually looked it up. I was like, the only way a budget could be this high is if you pay the stars a ton of money. And Bruce Willis made twenty million for this movie. Samuel L. Jackson made seven million, but there's still at least like fifty million unaccounted for there. Maybe in like shaving cream for Bruce Willis's head. <laughs> I know there's that big changing of the guard when he went from hair to no hair. All that to say is like this is a superhero movie, but there's hardly any action. I hardly any CGI. This is a very low budget almost like an indie movie superhero movie. It's also interesting because it's not entirely like accurate to call it a superhero movie. There are heroic things, but you're not entirely sure that there's anything superheroic, that there's anything paranormal or, or abnormal here going on. I feel like you could make the argument either way. There's a lot of good facts for both it being superhero and are they really superheroes? Right, right. it's ambiguous. And that's actually kind of a good I like thing that. about it. Yeah. yeah. Off that $75 million budget, it made $88 million domestically, $248 million worldwide. 
uh, the 23rd highest movie in 2000. So a modest hit, but nothing extraordinary. Just in terms of the landscape, we mentioned it comes after The Sixth Sense. Shyamalan was 30 when he made this, which is pretty impressive. And uh, we'll get into some more trivia in a bit, but let's talk about your reaction to this movie. Maybe your first reaction when you saw it the first time, and then maybe if you rewatched it for this podcast, what did you pick up on? I remember going to a pre-screening for Split in 2016 and finishing the movie and being like, that was solid. And then like the big twist at the end comes and I was like, I have no idea what's going on. And everybody in the theater gasped. And I was like, I feel like I'm missing out on some big inside joke right now. So I went home and immediately watched this and I I think I definitely liked it a lot more watching it now, thinking of it in the context of a superhero movie. Whereas before, I just kind of thought of it as like, this is a prequel to Split. And I don't know, I think I liked it more looking at it as a superhero movie. I was kind of in a similar boat, except when, you know, David Dunn shows up at the end of Split, I knew exactly what that meant. You know, not having seen Unbreakable, I knew exactly. And and I kind of, you know, rolled my eyes at it and and didn't think it was necessary. So I, I too went home, immediately watched it that same night. And I just remember being really underwhelmed. It's a very quiet, very slow movie. And I don't have a problem with that, but I just, I couldn't quite understand why people were, you know, like diehard fans about it. And uh-huh. yeah, right. Though I agree upon rewatch, I think it does actually deserve a fair bit of praise. I really wish I could add anything more, but between both of them, that's exactly what I was going to say. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure I was at the pre-screening with you. I can't add anything because you guys are the same. So I, I saw Split when it came out and I, I knew the connection. I knew of Unbreakable and I kind of knew the characters and I... I'm pretty sure I knew the twist as well, but I didn't watch it for some reason. I didn't see Glass. I still haven't seen Glass. I'm looking forward to watching it eventually. So I watched this uh, recently, and I was actually really impressed with it, especially watching it 20 years later, because it is really a kind of a deconstruction of the superhero movie and the myths of a superhero. It's interesting that it came out in 2000 because there weren't a lot of superheroes in movies to deconstruct, but as you watch it now... You're like, if this got made now, critics would be praising this as like the thinker's superhero movie. It, it's, it's a lot more slow and languid and the, the shots are so beautiful and it takes its time. It's not about CGI. It's about the characters. And it probably came out 20 years too early, to be honest. And I think you get a lot of uh, modern day superhero movies trying to deconstruct the genre a little bit, but this does it so much better. It's a lot different from how it is now, and it'd be interesting to see if the commentary remains the same. Originally, when I had first heard of Unbreakable, someone ruined the ending because that was the thing when M. Night Shyamalan movies came out. Oh, someone would just ruin the ending for you. I remember hearing, you know, spoiler alert, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably know how it ends, but Samuel Jackson turns out to be a super villain. And so, like, always going into it, I was like, Oh, it's it's a superhero movie, but you don't know till the end. And so to actually like, see it in its now proper context, I think it's amazing. The other thing I took away from it is just the slow pace and the way Shyamalan shoots these scenes. You know, there's I think I didn't do the research, but I, my guess is this is the superhero movie with the fewest cuts. There are so few cuts in these scenes. When you consider a modern movie, probably, you know, cuts every half a second or so between shots. This just takes its time. There are so many scenes of Bruce Willis and Robin Wright talking and it's just like a slow very slow zoom in on their character or maybe it goes side to side but it just lets these characters kind of shine and I think Bruce Willis does some of his best work here because it's so focused on him as an internal person not trying to make him hero per se he's they're making him a real person first before they make him the superhero noting some of the shots you mentioned I think one of my favorite parts in the movie is the opening with the how they film between the seats of the train I think that's just really well done or even just like the shot of his son watching tv and like showing the tv upside down all those reminded me of what it would look like 
to see this as a comic. I thought like the shots, the way that they flowed from one to the next reminded me of like the way that you would see it if it was portrayed in an actual comic book in front of you, which was really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think that there was a lot of respect for comics as an art form and to take these kind of myths and try to focus on, okay, where do they come from? What do they mean? And how does someone like David, someone who is chronically depressed, is having marital troubles, has a weird, creepy son? How does someone like him accept the fact that, okay, maybe I am special? One thing I want to ask, we kind of talked about a little bit already, but is this a superhero movie? Let's take out the comic book element of it in the plot. Let's say, you know, we don't have a character like Elijah talking about comic books all the time. Take that out completely. Is this a superhero movie? I I think it is, but I'm not sure. I'd be curious to see what you think. I would say it's almost more of a love letter to comics than an actual straight up superhero film. Obviously, there's something fantastical about his his powers he's he's not entirely normal human but there's not any sort of superheroic fight scene or anything the only real confrontation he has he doesn't actually do anything that special he he chokes a guy out and it doesn't even go quickly he takes a long time to do it yeah i was interested to ask that just because i think if we were just going on the basis of he has special powers that makes him a superhero that opens the door to a ton of movies. I mean, I'm thinking just of like any kind of horror movie where some person has some kind of ability. Well, that same year, you could say The Green Mile. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or I'm thinking of like Carrie or like Frozen. Elsa is a superhero. And it's like, sure. as soon as you start opening that door, you can have thousand superhero movies. One other thing I first hated about the movie and then I loved about the movie was James Newton Howard's score. Um, it's definitely like a 90s, late 90s, early 2000s thing to have like orchestral music with like a, a soft, like reverby drum beat over the top of it. And at first when it came on over the credits, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so cheesy. <laughs> but then as the movie goes on during that fight scene, he has the music picks up again and it's so like awesome. It just gets you going. And I was so into the music by the end. I even went back and watched the end of scene of Split where they connect the two and the music starts playing, and I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. It's dated, but it fits. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you think that this is some of Bruce Willis's best work, but I think that this is entirely Sam Jackson's movie. I mean, I, I think Elijah is the interesting character here. He is the one that fascinates me. He is the one whose performance I, I is enthralled by. This is his movie. Bruce Willis is there, but this is his movie. That's very well said. I mean, I, I wrote down in my notes that the intro is very brutal, and it, it shows him. It doesn't show Bruce Willis as a baby. It's... Him from the beginning to the end, we see Samuel Jackson. The flip side of that is I think Robin Wright was absolutely just given the worst stuff to work with here. I, I don't, I, I didn't find her compelling in any way. And I like Robin Wright. I just, I th- why, why is she there? Robin wrong for the part? That was Robin so stupid. Wrong part. <laughs> I think the part's not great, but she does the best with it. And I actually yeah. really enjoy the scenes with Bruce Willis and her. I think those are some of the best character development scenes for him. Maybe she could have had a few more spots to shine in there, but I actually kind of liked her in it. She she does good. I just hate that it's basically football bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't blame her. I don't think she's doing a poor job. I just think that she was not given a decent character. Uh, let's go to some trivia. I've got some things. You might have some too. Just going to rattle some off. Quentin Tarantino put this in his top 20 movies since 1992 list a couple of years ago. He loves this movie. He thinks it's a masterpiece. Time Magazine put it in their top 10 superhero movies of all time in 2011 so hmm. you know not a lot 
had come out by then, but sure. <laughs> still top 10. It would be interesting to see that list now. There's been so much that's happened between then and now. I also, I, I wonder how much that would change though, because again, the people who really love this movie really love this movie. They right. they will they will fight to the death for it's, that. It's a niche movie, but the people that love it will come to bat for it every time. Well, and if someone asked me, put together 10 superhero movies that kind of define the genre, I'd almost put this in here just because it's so different and yeah. it's unique. Versus like putting in 10 Marvel movies. Right. That's fair. Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson were always considered for the parts when Shyamalan wrote it. They're perfect. You know, they were working on Sixth Sense and he'd already agreed to do the film before it was actually written. So I think it was in this was the first time I've noticed uh, that he would have been Bruce Willis. He would have been a great Ben Grimm in a proper Fantastic Four movie. He's just because his head. Well, I want to hear him say it's clobbering time. I think he would say that really well. <laughs> I do. Shyamalan and his cinematographer framed several shots that look like comic book panels. Uh, several scenes of Elijah are shot through glass. Um, there's one through a mirror, one through a TV, one through a picture frame. That's the kind of stuff where I appreciate, but it's also a little on the nose. Like I picked up on it right away. Well, I don't know. It's, it all goes into his character part of being skewed. Like he has a skewed view on everything like that. And I get it. And I think after you know how the movie ends, sure. it makes a lot of sense. But Seeing it for the first time and being like, oh, that all makes sense. I think it's better then. We have hindsight on our side. I agree, but it's also like a little bit of like a college frat boy watching this movie. Oh, it's so deep, man. Yeah, but that's that 2000 yeah. sort of, you know what I mean? Everyone's looking to be as deep as they possibly can be. Uh, this might be obvious, but Shyamalan had a cameo as the suspected drug dealer at the football game. It was not marketed as a superhero movie, and that was a point of contention between the studio and Shyamalan. Shyamalan wanted this to be marketed as, you know, this is a superhero movie, but... The studio was like, no, we just made a ton of money on The Sixth Sense. If you watch the trailer for this, it's totally trying to be The Sixth Sense. It's like a paranormal thriller rather than a superhero movie. I think it does better when it's not, you know, I like if people didn't know it was a straight up superhero movie, if you knew as little about it going into it as possible, you're going to have the best time. It makes you wonder if they would have marketed it as a superhero movie, if it would have done better or worse, or if it didn't really make any difference at all. It's unclear, but I think Shyamalan and some of his supporters were of the impression that it would have done better. This is somewhat obvious as well, but each character has a color associated with them. Class is purple and David is green. And it's, it's very subtle in some parts, but a lot of their costuming is obviously tailored to that color. When you say subtle, you mean really obvious, right? Because <laughs> it's pretty obvious throughout the whole time. Well, I was going to say, this is the first time I noticed young Mr. Glass, his present was wrapped in purple wrapping paper, which yeah. is a nice touch to set that future. I meant subtle and more like compared to other superheroes who are wearing... You know, purple spandex. This is their uniform. It's more, you know, everyday clothing that kind of blends in a little bit sure. more. Sure. No, that's true. And it, it's it's well designed. Shyamalan approached Touchstone Pictures in 2001 about a possible sequel um, immediately following, not, you know, 16 years later. But the studio didn't think it could make any money, so they turned him down. It had such a great track record. I can't see why they would have ever done that. I think they wanted him to get more into the horror thriller genre, and that's, you know, he did signs right after this, so. Samuel L. Jackson came up with a lot of the character choices for Elijah, including the glass cane and parts of the costume and the hairstyle. The glass cane is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, th this just makes me think of his involvement in Phantom Menace when he was, he convinced George Lucas to give him a purple lightsaber. He's like, fuck, it's my favorite color. Wouldn't that be Attack of the Clones, Toms? I don't think he sees oh, lightsaber. Oh, boy. In what a can of worms. <laughs> I did notice on this one for the first time, yes, the glass cane is cool, like I said, but his padded car... Like, there's a brief sequence where he's in his car when he's checked up on Bruce Willis. I don't Willis. think I noticed that. You will notice next time, the whole interior of his car is padded, and it's really cool the way it's designed. Yeah, I thought that was a great detail, but then I also thought if he gets in a car crash, he's 
not going to help matter. him at all. He'd be dead anyway. <laughs> yeah. But um, some biblical allegories here. Um, yeah, let's get biblical. <laughs> Smite us, Dan. Smite us. <laughs> so Elijah in the Bible was a prophet in the Old Testament that prophesied the coming of a savior who he refers to as the son of David. I feel like they might have planned that. What do you think? Well, I have some, I have some theories about David's son in this, the, oh. the kid. So, you know, maybe we got something there. I, I saw a few other things that of all his work, this is Shyamalan's favorite that he did, which makes sense to me. He wrote a script and actually only ended up using the first third, which, you know, we'll talk about the ending a bit later, but it's kind of abrupt. But it makes sense that, you know, he was he was so drawn to this the origin side of it that he kind of just gave up with the other two and went with this instead. All right, let's move on to casting decisions. This is where we kind of break down potential casting. Uh, This movie is a little different because, as we said, Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis were considered for the part right away, and they said yes, and it's that's the end of the story. Uh, A few other ones, though. Julianne Moore was the original choice to play Audrey, but she dropped out to star as Clarice in Hannibal. Like I said, I feel like that would have been just fine, but I don't know that it would have made any difference to me either way who was playing Audrey in this. My only other note here was, why no Haley Joel Osment? He had just done The Sixth Sense with Shyamalan. He, I think, is a better actor than the kid that they got. Uh, I, I, I understand maybe you don't want to get him just because it's like, oh, it's The Sixth Sense 2 at that point with Bruce sure, Willis. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but I think he just would have done a better job. At the time, he was making Pay It Forward and AI, so maybe he was Oh, so they probably couldn't afford him. I mean, honestly, maybe, yeah, with a $75 He's million the dollar kid, budget. Right? Maybe that lost money was the money they tried to woo him, and then it right. just never panned out. All in all, I think he would have done a better job than little Lucius. The one thing I will say for uh, for who they have is that he does get the uh, dead eye right. Yeah, he's a spooky kid. He's weird. <laughs> he later shows up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for other comic book oh, facts yeah. as um, Baron von Stucke's son. There always has to be a relation to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so yeah. thank you for that. He had quite the year. He did this and Gladiator in the same year. and oh, Good for him. Bad. While we're talking about the MCU, I do want to point out that uh, this is the first appearance of Samuel L. Jackson on this podcast and it's not for the MCU which you know good for him he's, I think he's gonna he's gonna show up in a lot of these okay next category is best scene I'm gonna give a few nominees you can give a few nominees as well the first one is that whole train sequence you know the one shot of you find how it's a little, little girl looking at the two of them in the front seat but that whole conversation with the sports agent before the crash uh, I've got the football game where um, Elijah goes and visits David while he's working and they kind of talk about it's not, it's not a huge scene, but that whole part leading up to when Elijah falls down the stairs, chasing the guy afterwards. Right. Uh, Joseph with a gun. You know, Joseph's got a gun. Exactly. David taking out the kidnapper. Um, yep. You know, that whole sequence. And then the last thing I have on here is the twist ending, which we will probably talk about a little bit more. But just that whole sequence of in the comic book store, him shaking hands and revealing the entire plan. Any other nominees? I say for best scene, and it's just before the one you said, which is him walking into the train station. Like the minute he enters the train station, goes down the stairs, and just how he views every single person. And then when you finally see the murderer at that bit, that whole sequence is really well done. That's probably my favorite scene. Mine is right around the same time, talking about the scene at the stadium. The whole scene where Samuel L. Jackson is walking down the stairs, and you're just sitting there like, why are you doing this? Like, you're going to get hurt. And you just see his feet shuffling on the stairs. And the whole time you're just like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I feel like that held up really well. And 
it like still even on the third watch makes me cringe and i like can only watch it with one eye open the sequence where he's chasing that man is far and away my favorite sequence in the entire thing you see the desperation there but you also just see like you know when he's he's falling on the stairs and he's he's broken all these bones and stuff and and he looks upside down and sees the gun and there's just this moment of vindication where he's like doesn't matter doesn't matter that he fell down the stairs you know that he sees it he knows it's true and that is just the most beautiful moment and of course he's upside down per the of that skewed yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's definitely my favorite scene right there. All right, moving on to Villain Corner. Uh, this is where we rate the villain's diabolical plan. Uh, you know, whether it was logical, whether it made sense, whether they had kind of had a point. Um, let's talk about Glass's plan for a second. So obviously Glass is, or Elijah, he's not of sound mind. He's trying to look for his place in the world. I, I get all that. But the idea of let's just stage terrorist attacks until someone survives is that really the best way to go about finding your opposite person? I mean, you did just sort of say that he is not of sane mind. I do think what this has going for it is you don't know the plan until the very end. So like, if you do want to judge it or like be like, why? It's at the end and the movie's over before you can really think about it too much. I actually really like the whole plan. You know, staging these huge accidents or, you know, these attacks is crazy for sure, but he's not being maniacal for the sake of being maniacal. He's doing it because he is so desperate for this understanding of why he is the way he is of his place in the world. And so, yeah, he took the train to crazy town. He he did all these horrible things, but then he feels vindicated. Like he, he knows that he's done what he needed to do to understand. And so like you, you see this kind of fanaticism and, and obsession, but it kind of pays off. So it's kind of smart. It pays off, but I think he got lucky. Like he did three terrorist attacks and like killed like 300 people and one guy survived and he happened to be the guy he's looking for. I I think there's a better way to start eliminating people and figuring out who you're looking for. Well, he did three that we know of. There, there were other sure. headlines. We don't know how many of those he actually staged or didn't. It makes you wonder how many David Dunn's are out there. That's actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because I wrote this down and kind of forgot about it. Elisha does mention that there are people that have more severe cases of his disease, which made me wonder like, okay, are there people that are more extreme versions of David? And I haven't seen Glass, so I don't know his character arc here, but I'm assuming he intended just to be, find this guy and then get arrested. Like he clearly doesn't care that he's telling him the entire thing at the end. He obviously knows comic books really well. You don't always, you know, you don't want to reveal your plot like that unless you want to be caught. And as the villain, though, hey, that's part of the sure part but of the like, gig. He, you know, the end title card says he was serving time in prison. So sure. it's like he did achieve his ultimate goal, though, which right. he knows his purpose in life, yeah. which what a goal for a villain. Let's move on to our next category called capes and tights, where we rate the superhero costumes a little tougher with this one. You know, last time we had some great X-Men leather costumes. This one, you know, security rain jacket. Not bad. I do like Glass's wardrobe a lot. Yeah, just like the glass cane to his hair even and like all the pops of like pizzazz and sparkle. And it's like that added element that makes it feel a little bit more like a superhero movie. When we first see him, he's got a purple suit with a turtleneck. Looks dope then later after he's broken his bones and is you know in a wheelchair has got the brace he's got fucking purple buttons on his tearaway pants which is just beautiful and then we see his exhibit outfit where he's got the you know the sparkly purple lapels costume for david blech it's so it's so boring yeah there was like a part where i think it's the scene where he's saving those two kids in the house and the hood is just like overtaking him it's like all you can see is just like 
this hooded man. And I don't know if that was like the intention of it to make it feel like, oh, who is this mysterious man like they do in the newspaper afterwards? But it feels a bit like, could we just make this a little less like poncho-y? <laughs> See, yeah, I don't mind his like face was covered. I actually think that's kind of a good effect, especially when he does show the newspaper uh, photo. But I just wish that it had been something more memorable. I don't, I don't People are probably getting mad at me for that. I do like to think Prince was like, yes, that looks great, and maybe stole some of the ideas. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of purple going on. Okay, next category is which side character deserves their own spinoff? And we're not going to count like the actual spinoffs that happened from this, but I've got a couple nominees. One that I really want to see is the movie about the star football recruit from Temple University. Cornerback, oh 6'1", one, 210 pounds, runs a 40 in 4.3 seconds. You're a nightmare, Dan. Gonna be this. a god. Dan is two for two for sneaking in sports references to it's our like, podcast. It's like this whole episode. He was like, all right, let's 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 get done with this capes and tights category. I got to get to this. <laughs> when does that part even come up? We just watched it yesterday. Uh, the, the sports agent gives him the rundown of this new client she's going to see. And then ah, he, that's he right. comes up that's later right. when they're playing football in the park. And it's somebody's cousin. And it's definitely that guy. Okay. I will say he doesn't look like a cornerback. He's more of a linebacker build. But we're cutting you off, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. just so all excited. Right. <laughs> my other side character, and this is my theory kind of a question I have with the movie too is how does Joseph get the all that weight on the bench? You know, 250 pounds is a lot. I know it's split into different, you know, little... Oh, um, I see what you're you guessing know, at here. Y- usually those little, what do, I don't know what you call them, the medallions of weight sure. you put on the thing or at least like 25 to 50 pounds. The weights. Like, yeah, they're heavy. Are we sure that he doesn't have powers too or he's like slowly developing his dad's strength? I mean, they only have a few of the really big plates, so I'm assuming David put those on himself. So I, I think that he, he can handle probably could handle 25 pounds at a time. I'm here for that theory. He is my choice though for the spinoff, but only because I want to see what kind of like psychological problems he has <laughs> oh yeah that gun scene yeah, is like he's up. spiraling down a, a well just to like hit a villain status one day okay next category is the producer's chair if you could go back in time and change one thing about the movie what would it be one option is his weakness is he can't swim Learn to swim. That's that's not a weakness. That's just well, he's afraid of water. That's it's not that he's not, afraid of. It's not a, a kryptonite, though. Well, some people, I get it. Like some and, people are afraid of heights. And uh, spoiler alert for signs. But Shyamalan uses that twice. Fear of water. One of my other not actual choices is just give it a more substantial ending. I think there's something that can be said for how it does end. I don't think it's necessarily bad. It just feels a little underwhelming. But the absolute worst thing about this, there's no way in hell David would not have known that he's never been sick. Like your friend's like, oh, I'm sick. I have a fever. And David's like, hmm. I don't know what a fever feels like. His parents would have remarked on that at some point. Like, people would have fucking known. That's one of those small, every superhero movie has a moment where you go, just give it to him. Like, just ignore that one little thing. Yeah, I think you could go like a year without getting sick and maybe like you would remark on it. Like, I'd be like, oh, normally I get like some type of cold or like sinus infection or something over the winter, but it's been 20, 30. <laughs> like, old. If I could change anything about this movie, I might just make it 10 years later or 15 years later or 20 years later. I think it didn't have quite the effect it had when it came out that it does now just because we have this history now of watching these kinds of movies. I would argue with that, though, because for me, I'm not going to change anything. I like how simplistic it is. Like, just the poncho, just the blue suit. It's not an all-up-in-your-face superhero movie. You're not even going to cast a better kid? 
No, I think, okay. I mean, you could, yeah. you could, but I don't think that's a deal breaker because I think at the end of the day, it's, it achieves exactly what it wants. Yes, the end is a little lackluster, but to be fair, he did finish that eventually. And who's to say he couldn't have done that in a different way? I don't know. I think the movie, start to finish, even the time period it came out, it makes me appreciate it more now. So okay. I'm actually happy with everything. I think similar to that, when I was trying to come up with something that I would change about it, the only thing I could think of was like similar to thinking about David Dunn, how he like, how did you not realize X, Y, and Z? Like part of me wondered, would it have been better if Glass had like some dramatic like facial scar or something? Because he was such a fragile boy. Like (laughs) he got in so many like accidents and broke so many bones. But like he really like other than having a limp or, you know, whatever, like he didn't really have any physical damage to him like he didn't look different at all but then again i think that that's what makes it interesting is that like he doesn't look like a villain like there's nothing that's unnerving about him other than just his behavior (laughs) all right let's go into questions what questions did this movie bring up while watching it first and foremost who chooses rust and brown as their favorite colors Terrible choices. There had to have been somebody that he was pulling from when he said that because that's not normal. (laughs) Like, that's like the kind of thing that happens that you're like, this is really trivial and it doesn't matter. But like, there's so many other options. I like a rust. I'd like to think that maybe that whole scene was ad-libbed and that was the best out of all the ad-libbed conversations they could possibly get. (laughs) It it is important to note that he does not like rust on metal. He only likes rust as a color. Yes, that makes them so much more interesting. Sorry, I've, I've created a monster of a conversation here. One that bothered me, and it probably only bothered me, and not you guys, but... There's a scene where David is working in a football game, oh, college boy. football game, and there's a sold out crowd, and then he gets a call that his son got in trouble at school. Which college football team is playing on Tuesday morning, you know, in the middle of the week where <laughs> school a, is in session? That's a good point. Colleges that's play on Saturdays. Point. <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to break up a different point that really bugged me, but when he's, you know, overseeing security for this game and they're like, oh, a friend of yours is here. He doesn't do any work for the rest until until he goes down to the field. He's just walking around with Elijah. He has a job to do. I, I know I know they made a big deal about him never taking a sick day, but does he always blow off work like this? I also love that his boss is like, oh, you got a friend here. He's not going to tell me his name, but I guess it's just fine. Come meet him. Like, no, that's a security risk. I feel like he would need the name. One of my questions is for Joseph with the gun. What? Uh, this question's for Joseph? <laughs> yes, uh, about the gun. <laughs> I get what he's going for. He wants to prove his dad is Superman. But couldn't you like start a little smaller? Like, couldn't you like cut his finger or something like that? Just to see Straight the to heels. the pistol. Let's just shoot him in the heart. What worst case scenario? <laughs> this is probably so dumb. And it's bringing out like the inner preschool teacher in me. But you're telling me that a kid that has the balls to go and get his dad's gun and then get the hidden bullets for said gun load the gun, point the gun at his dad, is going to back off from just like a, you're in trouble, one, two, and then he sets the gun down like, fine, I'm going to be in trouble. Like, you just loaded a gun. <laughs> well, that is never really punished. Like, I feel like that would be a, we're going to send you to camp now or yeah, something. his parents go out to dinner like the next night. I'm that, sure he'll be fine with the sitter. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, is that whole thing is infuriating to me, like... And that's why we need serial killer Joseph spinoff. I'm here for it. One last question I had revolves around David's power. So he obviously has super strength, but the whole touch someone and see all of their sins, or at least their crimes. That's a much bigger power. Why are they not freaking out about that? That is a huge superpower. That is some dead zone level superpower. It makes you wonder if David's ever touched a person before. (laughs) 
<laughs> up to that point, he never had. It's like, funny, it took me until this day to realize that I could do that. Well, it also might be why his marriage was on the rocks. He kept seeing everything wrong his wife had been doing <laughs> and then just got madder and madder. Okay, so you brought it up. Let's talk about the cringe factor. What aged the worst? What doesn't look good anymore? This is one of our oldest movies we'll watch, but it doesn't have a lot of CGI like X-Men did where you you notice things like that. I did notice some bad CGI of the church when he's walking out of the church. The church is definitely fake. It's not a real church. But other than that, I think the movie looks pretty good. One thing that was cringeworthy for me is is when he's in the train station touching all the people to see what, you know, try to find like the worst person to go after essentially. They have the jewelry thief lady, there's like the racist guy on the street, and then there's the rapist where he's just like, no, nah, not good enough. I'm gonna let that one go. That has not aged very well. Yeah, that's really rough. Granted, the guy he goes after is probably the worst of all of them, but still, like, you couldn't have gotten both. <laughs> I would argue that he does think about that one longer than the other sure, ones. But like they but that's gonna be a harder one for him to prove the way they in terms of beating it, someone like, up. Yeah. This is gonna sound like a very trivial thing after something like that, but I thought there were some very dated like zooms and like fisheye type moments where it's just it was a product of the times and I think I said in our last podcast it's not my favorite era of of cinema yeah for this uh cringe section i i took more away from your second question dan of what has aged poorly and for me it is the director who you know this movie is pretty great but as it went down the line he's like sort of a joke now well it's kind of ebbed and flowed and i thought about that thinking about the stylistic touches in this you know all the different camera movement at the time when he's you know on his rise i'm sure was just like he is on it these are amazing flourishes and then maybe if you'd watch this right after like the happening yeah. you might look at this and be like wow he's just so full of himself he doesn't know what he's doing he's just like so extravagant in these things i think people are starting to come around him a little bit more in the last few years where i i see some of those flourishes and i'm like yeah, they're a little over the top, but I'm more okay with them now. He's not always made the best movies, but I do think that even when he was making his bad movies, like there's still some obvious talent there, and it's the same type of stuff that makes some of these earlier ones really good, I think. It's just when you pair it with, you know, worse writing, worse concepts, worse acting, like it's you see the cracks with this type of stuff, but then you really see him break open for stuff like The Happening. I mean, there's a world where he has like this brilliant career after this and you know unbreakable is becoming the next criterion edition and people are praising it for all these different things i would buy a criterion of unbreakable okay all right let's wrap it up with talking about the legacy will this movie live on for future generations is it a success and do you recommend it i think for anyone that enjoys superhero movies it's a good time capsule it helps that it came out before sort of people got over the whole superhero things. A lot of people right now are kind of over it as a genre. The fact that it is set in the past kind of protects it from some of those problems. Very simple, easy to follow, and basically it's it's for comic fans. So if you're a comic book person, you'll enjoy it. I didn't love Split or Glass, but I feel like those helped bring this back into the light. And I know like a lot of people who I don't think would have ever seen this if it weren't for those movies. I don't know that it has like a huge legacy or anything. I mean, for for certain people it does, and I would stand by that. I think it's a great movie, but I hope that it lives on for future generations. It's really solid. I don't think it's the type of thing where it's going to ever be in the main dialogue, you know, cultural dialogue again, but as we've talked about, like there are people that will defend this movie forever, and I think that it will kind of grow as not, it's because it's not like a cult, classic but it you could say that but it has a similar type of thing and i do think that it's going to grow in a much more academic way yes i don't see necessarily the influence in other movies from this one i don't think they've made a lot of movies like this in the last 20 years but 
it is something to go revisit. And I, I will definitely watch this again someday. All right, guys, that was Unbreakable. Good job. Um, our next film on our list, we're going chronologically. Um, I should say we're only doing theatrically released movies, not direct-to-video, because there are a lot of like direct-to-video animated superhero movies around this time. But we're going just chronologically theatrical release. Our next one is Blade 2. Oh, yeah. Blade I 2. I love that for us. From 2002, directed by Guillermo del Toro. I can't wait to ice skate uphill with you guys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to need to watch Blade 1 first because I have not seen any of the Blade movies. Shame on me. But we're going to do it. Thank you.